Hola, welcome to season three of More Than Rice and Beans, the mother-son podcast where we introduce you to our favorite Latinx creators, innovators, and entrepreneurs. I'm Miguel, a mechanical engineer PhD student at Johns Hopkins University, funded by a NASA fellowship. And I'm his mom, Tanya. I'm a chef, educator, and proud New Yorican. This season on More Than Rice and Beans, we've got, well, a lot more for you. More amazing guests, more ridiculous sidebar conversations, and more meaningful discussions on what it's like to navigate this world as a Latinx person. We're so excited you're joining us for this incredible season, along with our all-star lineup of guests. Get ready, because this time, it's way more than rice and beans. Welcome back to More Than Rice and Beans, the mother-son podcast where we talk about Latin food, culture, life, and more. I'm Miguel, the son. <laughs> and I'm his mom, Tanya. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Today, we have an incredible guest. Carlos Reyes is a longtime journalist and the host of Sundial, a daily show on the South Florida NPR affiliate station where he shares the stories that make Miami wonderful and weird. He was awarded not one, but two James Beard Awards for his work as food editor at the Miami Herald, including the 2022 Jonathan Gold Local Voice Award for engaging the community with his food writing. He's also the author of an incredible memoir, Take Me With You, A Secret Search for a Forbidden Family in Cuba, in which he recounts his journey to connect with his ancestry. Carlos, thank you so much for joining us today on More Than Rice and Beans. Oh man, it's it's such a pleasure to be here with you guys. After uh, following Tanya's recipes online for for so long, I'm I'm glad to be here talking about food and life and culture and whatever else. <laughs> First, I want to congratulate you on your second James Beard Award for your work with Miami Herald. It was it is so well deserved, and I'm thrilled for you. How did it feel to win for the second time? Oh, it was uh, it was totally unexpected. Um, that uh, and I mean that honestly because um, the biggest thing that happened to me that weekend is that I got engaged. So oh, we, congratulations! Went, yeah, it was in Chicago, and it was a, it's a special city for uh, for my my fiance and I, and uh, and it, I had already been planning a trip there to propose when I got the nomination. So I said, you know, this is great. It gives me cover to go up and propose, and, and like she'll never see it coming. And uh, she said yes, and the very next day I, uh, I won the James Beard, so it was icing on top of the cake. Wow, that's great. Yeah, that's perfect timing. <laughs> Just back to it, back. I mean, it could have been a terrible weekend, right? She could have said no, and I could have lost, and then... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I could have been living under a bridge in, in, uh, in Chicago. So you took that <laughs> chance. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I grew up in New York City with my mom, um, and I was very connected to Puerto Rican culture through my mom and through constantly visiting Puerto Rico to see family. So I know you grew up in South Florida um, and you were so kind of immersed in Cuban culture. I mean, Miami is like a Cuban, <laughs> like the, everyone there is like speaks Spanish and everything. So it's a huge uh, sensor for Cuban culture. But you were never able to set foot in Cuba until you were much older. So what was the experience of of having that kind of dichotomy between the two cultures? It was, um, it's something that, that, you know, a whole generation of, of uh, Cuban American kids um, lived with, you know, we, 
we inherited the this culture and this memory from our parents uh and from a thing that they created here you know so you always grow up you grew up with this language and this culture and this background but yet you're in america and you have you have no connection to this place that they're talking about you know they build memories and images in your mind you know anecdotes built these uh, built these these paisajes, you know, in your in your in your memory, and um, so going was like this, uh, you know, was like going to this forbidden place, this place that you never think that you're that you imagine you're going to be able to go because it, it, you know, in very many ways, it still is uh, a forbidden country, you know, um, and especially at the time when I went, it was, uh, you know, there were not the relations between Cuba and, and the United States were uh, even not as good as they are now, as bad as they are now. Uh, uh, there still weren't as good. So it was really, it felt like taking this big, unexpected leap of faith, you know? For me, I, I felt like it kind of became the intro to my book. I felt like I needed to get my dad's permission. You know, I mean, my dad spent two years in a in a prison. Uh, he spent two years in, a, in an agricultural prison camp, you know, digging latrines and things like that. You basically, he, for for trying to leave the island. So he tried to leave the island on a on a speedboat, kind of quote unquote illegally leave because they weren't granting visas to leave the country anymore. Um, right after, you know, in 1960. So he spent two years in prison for trying to leave. And then when you're out, they say, okay, if you still want to leave, you have to do two years of agricultural uh, labor. So it doesn't matter if you were a doctor or you were already a farmer, which is what my dad had been for most of his life. You had to go work in these fields. And um, you know, so for, for a person then to leave that, you know, and spent, stay stamped through your passport is invalid, uh, and then have your son, you know, have this chance to go, you know, I, I felt like I had to ask his permission to, to go. And I was surprised when I, when I said dad, you know, the newspaper that I'm going to Cuba. And then I explained to him that the newspaper wanted to send me to Cuba. He says to me, after he thinks for a long time, he says, take me with you. Because you can imagine, you can imagine, you know, he hadn't been home uh, from for almost fifty years, and um, and so that's what I try to do is when I try to go, I went as a reporter uh, for, for uh, I was working at a newspaper at the time called the Palm Beach Post, and so I tried to bring back stories and try to take him with me, so to speak, in that way. You know, I tried to 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 uh, to bring those stories back with me. And take the stories that he told me over the years with me uh, to Cuba and to help uh, illuminate my trip. So it was a it was like a, a before and after in my life being able to go, for sure. And did your family try to kind of um, like keep all of those cultural values and traditions while you were growing up in in Miami? Like make it kind of like their own Cuba in America? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you don't realize how um uh how insular south florida can be until you get outside of it because they've created a community they landed here and they created a whole community that uh that you know you can you can only speak spanish for your entire life if you want and get by you know and that's that's something really particular especially in a place like florida like florida is such a traditionally older white conservative state and then you have this very Latin culture in in Miami, and it's like this little bubble outside of uh, outside of the rest of the state. 
So um, it, it is really interesting how, you know, um, uh, you, you have an influx of language, you have an influx of culture, uh, food, like food traditions, you know, there are food traditions that only exist in Miami. Um, and then on top of that, like there are other, there are other thriving cultures here, you know, the Haitian community, the Bahamian community, which was one of the biggest, uh, black communities in South Florida to begin with. And it's interesting to watch how all those cultures and flavors and dialects melt, you know, uh, it's funny cause we have some people that are like, they consider themselves gringos, you know, Americano that are, that grew up in Miami that who don't speak Spanish but their accent sounds like they do. Their English accent sounds like they do speak Spanish. It's wild. Yeah, actually, I, um, I, I went to like a band camp where um, my percussion teacher was a, the principal timpanist of the Florida Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And he lived in Miami for several years and, and um, played in Miami. And he could speak Spanish better than me. And it's because mm-hmm. he like like lived in Miami for so long and really interacted with the people there that he was like, yeah, if you want to learn Spanish, don't go to a Spanish-speaking country. Go to Miami. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good yeah, advice. So, yeah, I always thought that's funny because if you go to touristy spots in these uh, Latin American countries, sometimes like they actually speak more English than Spanish. But if you go to yeah. Miami, it's like everyone speaks Spanish. Everyone speaks <laughs> as much English or as much Spanish as you want. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Yeah. So do you ever feel at odds between um, your Cuban roots and, and just growing up as an American teenager, or American kid? You know, it's, it's one of those things. It's uh, your life is whatever it is. You know, you don't know any different. Uh, and it wasn't probably until I got to college that I realized that, um, how, how, what a, what a specific culture I had grown up in, you know, where I started seeing kids from, you know, all over the world that were now going to school with me. You know, I went to the university of Florida, which is in Gainesville, which is not, uh, it's not, it's maybe a five hour drive from Miami, but it might as well be South Georgia. Like it's totally different culturally. Uh, and, and then you have this, this influx of kids. So there was never so much of a struggle growing up, but going out, I realized that, that I'd been fortunate to kind of grow up in, in a way, fortunate to grow up in this little bubble, you know, where, where it was okay to speak Spanglish and it was okay to bring Cuban food to, uh, to school. And even though I, I grew up in a little bit more of American part, like I grew up just North of Miami in a, a little town called Miramar, which is, uh, right across the Dade Broward border. So that County line is, is very much like a, like an asymptote, you know, people don't, they go close, but they almost never cross on a daily basis. Um, so I did go to school with a lot of kids who were, you know, really American kids, you know, and uh, and it was funny to see kids, you know, go to school with their peanut butter and jellies. And I had, you know, you know, uh, my mom would, you know, have like leftover ropa vieja or something. <laughs> so it was definitely like you look around the room and you're like, oh, you know, I am, you know, I am and my things are a little different. So you said you went to Cuba and you were, it inspired you to write your memoir take me with you is that what your father said right take me with you that's mm-hmm. what inspired the title of the memoir that now i'm connecting both can you tell us a little bit about you know you mentioned your experience there but tell us a little bit more about your experience when you arrived where did you where was the first place you went to as soon as you arrived to cuba besides the hotel of course where i set up to begin with was in an old havana so you know so um 
Cuba has a section um, in the, you know, the city of Havana has an old section that was, you know, the oldest, the oldest part. And I remember going for a walk and, um, and kind of like going to the section. They're like, oh, this is the touristy section. You should go, you know, go see it, you know, because I, I was going as a journalist. So I really wanted to get also an image of like, what does Cuba look like and feel like now? And I went down the section and, you know, the, the buildings were nicely painted, like the street where I was walking on, uh, San, San, uh, I think it's called San Oipo or just Oipo. And the, you know, the, the storefronts are beautifully painted and you see, you know, the United Colors of Benetton, you know, there's uh, there's national uh, uh, department stores and there's the Floridita bar, which is supposedly where Hemingway drank. And you're like, oh, this is so like, this is so quaint. And, you know, in a way, like people have told me that it was very similar to, um, to Puerto Rico in parts, you know, to, to San Juan, to old San Juan. And, uh, and I was like, Oh, okay. I get that. You know? And then I turned down one of these side streets and there's no more paint on the walls and the concrete is cracked and the, the fire escapes are all askew and you keep walking and there's a, uh, a building that's kind of crumbled and it's been, you can tell it's been laying there for 20 years in, in, in crumbled chunks. And there are little kids running around barefoot, you know, and uh, there's, you know, you can smell and you can tell that like the, like there's sewage walk, like on parts of the street and there's piles of garbage on a corner, you know, and you realize that, Oh, Cuba is very much about appearances in the sense that like, you know, I, I had been, to Haiti, I've been to, you know, the Dominican Republic, like on the very edge of Haiti and seen kind of like some real, like, you know, what we t tend to call third world poverty, you know, and that, you know, once you get away from the parts where they try to make it really nice, you realize, oh, wow, Cuba is, is really like the rest of the, the poorest parts of the Caribbean in, in parts, you know, and then you really start to see, you know, el abandono, right? Like the, and that, that hit me the most, um, because I, I still do have our, at the time I did have family there. Uh, you know, my mom's, my mom's um, sister uh, was, was in Cuba, was never able to, to leave. And, and she lived in really dire conditions, you know, in, a, in an old house, you know, uh, you know, with like a bunch of other families and same thing, the crumbling walls. And it's really stunning to see a place kind of frozen in time and not in a, like a cute way, you know, not in like a, you know, because we see the pictures of the old cars and you're like, oh, that's pretty cool, you know. But um, that's really kind of only the surface, you know, and it was it was tough. It was tough, though. It was it was two weeks and and a lot of it was um, really moments of reckoning of seeing, you know, really seeing people struggle to try to make it every day. You know, it was it was it was mm -hmm. hard. Hmm. Was the food what you expect it to be? Oh, no, the food was totally different. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I remember, I remember going into a bar and, uh, you know, they had a full menu of, of, of items at Floridita. And, uh, cause I was like, Oh, this is a touristy spot. I'll get something to eat here. And like, there was none of the dishes that I recognized as a kid growing up. There was no ropa vieja on the menu. There was no vaca frita. There was no Cuban sandwich. There was no sandwich, so to speak. Uh, it was like all, I, I don't even remember what I ate because it was like, culturally like you know so much of food is tied so much into our culture so that yeah. i expect like once you hear that language and it's like oh their accents are like ours you know and 
and you expect all these other things to be the same and you realize that sometimes you know your language is the only thing that you have in common which is i think what a lot of people mistake about latins in general they hear latinos speak spanish and they say oh it's it's an all a monolith and it's like just from the cubans in miami to cuba to cuba itself there is such an incredible wide berth separation of belief and thought and culture and the only thing that's the same is the language you know and i think that um i think that 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 is that's something that i think that a lot of people don't that aren't that are outside the latin cultures you know don't understand that uh just because everybody speaks the same language doesn't mean that you're all you know a cultural monolith you know so yeah it was odd to, to find a place where the food was the food was so different you know and and i was like they make a lot of pizza, right? Because pizza, yes. Wow. <laughs> pizza was super common in Cuba everywhere, everywhere, everywhere you went. How was it? It was odd. It was very different. <laughs> so like the dough, um, you know, uh, very, it's a big deal here in Miami too. We have, we have quote unquote Cuban pizza, which is like a real thick pillowy dough. Imagine like a, like a pan pizza, but without the edge. <laughs> so like a, puffy dough and then like a sweet the sauce is very sweet and it's topped with like a cheese the cheese they use a lot of um uh well they obviously make a lot of their own cheese so the cheeses have a lot of like a, almost like a goat milk flavor you know like a oh, like okay. a very um pungent strong flavors you know so like the pizza is totally wild totally different and you see it everywhere <laughs> and i guess it made sense because to make pizza can be pretty cheap i mean it's yes. flour and water yeah you know uh and that was really surprising. Like I remember I went to one place and they had a, it said, you know, the different kinds of pizza, pizza. And it said pizza de perro. And I was like, oh my God. And what they do is they oh make, God. they make hot dog pizza. So like little, little hot dog slices on top of the pizza. Esa la pizza de perro. <laughs> oh my goodness so, so how like many that, of those pizzas did you eat I, I ate a lot of pizza in cuba that was the odd, that was the strangest thing i didn't expect to say that when you came back right right it was odd uh yeah and the other thing i that you know rice and beans you do find it at, at some restaurants but um my aunt um it, i had such a weird variety of of different kinds of beans it wasn't just like like you had black beans, you had a lot of, um, we had a lot of chicharro, so split pea. Okay. Um, I had a, a, a cousin of my dad's who's, who's again now passed away, but he spent like a, he, he invited me over for tamales. He made tamales, you know, uh, there was a lot of pork, you know, there was a lot of pork. So I was like, all right, that's still consistent. <laughs> uh, so that was uh, it. Was really interesting to see a whole different kind of cuisine, and and also see what's available for tourists. Because for tourists, there were like Chinese restaurants and stuff like that. It was um, well, you know, there Cuba has a big like like a like a Chinatown, uh, and uh, which they've had for a long time. There's a lot of Cuban chinos, uh, and um, I, I remember going there with a guy who I'd hired as a day as a driver. Like I just paid him to to take me, you know, everywhere the whole the whole day. And I treated him to dinner there. I was like, come on in, we'll have dinner. He's like, really? Yeah, yeah, come on. And we we ordered Chinese food. And uh, and he ordered a steak. So like a palomilla style, very thin steak with onions, like at the cute at the Chinese restaurant, which like, okay. And um what I learned later is that um is that uh, uh, 
Cubans, regular nationals, don't have access to beef, really. Uh, you, it's really reserved only to be sold at tourist locations. And like you can actually, um, for you to have beef, you usually have to have a, a prescription for it. You have to have a doctor write a prescription to say that you need the extra protein and to give you the ability to buy to buy beef, which is it's crazy, right? Yeah. It's crazy. It's also an odd prescription because beef actually has less protein content than like chicken. It, right? <laughs> it's very strange. It's very strange. So, uh, but you know, I don't know. It was definitely a, a, a cultural awakening, you know. Some people say that Cuba is a bit unsafe. Did you feel unsafe there or did you feel okay? Well, I mean, it's been 10 years since I've been, so I can't say how it is today, but I, I felt safe. You know, it's interesting because uh, when it's nighttime, it's pitch black. Like, the, yeah, it really like there's no, and it's a, that's very common in the Caribbean, I think, too. But like when the sun goes down, there's very few street lights, and it is pitch black and there's you know not a lot of cars driving around and the cars that do have the old the old style you know kind of like yellowish headlights you know yeah and if and it feels like someone has just kind of turned down the lights you know has dimmed down the whole lights it's very wild but no i i never felt i never felt uh unsafe when i was there yeah i was actually surprised because my my girlfriend had the chance to go to cuba like just a few years ago when obama mm -hmm. had just made it available to people who like had a specific reason And right. for her, she was, she's a trumpet player, a Latin, so she played at a Latin band. And so cool. their excuse was that they were able to like play in Cuba um, awesome. as part of the Latin band. And um, when she was there, she told me like, yeah, she felt more safe, like walking in the streets of Havana at night than she does in New York City, which really surprised me. I didn't expect that at all. Yeah, it felt, it felt really safe. And it's the truth is like, you know, There are not a lot of people walking around with guns in Cuba. <laughs> like, yeah. You yeah. know, like that's, uh, and by not a lot, prop, like nobody, you know. Uh, so, you know, that part of it, uh, yeah, I, I, I felt, I agree with her. I felt pretty safe too there. Carlos, you know, I must talk about food. Vamos a hablar de comida otra vez. Yes. I love having you here because the story of your relationship with food is really the story of your life. This will make it easier for me to ask you hundreds of questions that I have. Okay, <laughs> not a hundred, but close. For starters, can you give us a bit background on your dad's history with food and how it shaped your childhood? Oh, wow. So, uh, so my, my dad... My mom was a great cook. She cooked most of the many of the meals at, in our house. But my dad, it was I thought it I didn't realize until later that it was odd to have a dad that cooked all the time, you know, like that not every kid had that. So my dad, um he grew up as a farmer in, you know, the farming region in Cuba and then they later opened like that they went the brothers moved a couple at a time to the capital city and they opened they started with a little cafeteria, you know, a little kiosk selling coffee at, you know, three cents a cup, um, to then, you know, uh, eventually having like a little restaurant and the restaurant was, uh, it was called, well, the, the, the cafeteria was called Mibuchito Oriental because they were from El Oriente. And then uh, the restaurant was called El Restaurante Oriental or something like that. And it was ironic because their main cook was a, was a, a Chinese Cuban guy. 
So they had a lot of like part of the food was there was a lot of like Chinese influenced food at the restaurant. And, um, and so when my dad, and so then they opened, like they had a little juice stand and then they had another little cafeteria um, called La Copa. And so they, they got into this whole kind of food business, food and drinks. So when my dad, uh, you know, gets arrested for trying to leave the country um, and then he's working in the agricultural camp, you know, the agricultural camps were, uh, were really difficult. You know, they were like, like I said, you were digging latrines. So like whole areas where people would go to use the bathroom, kind of like sewage areas. Um, you know, you were chopping, like you were planting rice paddies, you know, and there's like biboras, you know, there's vipers and snakes in the, um, you're cutting sugar cane, you know, it's very laborious work. Um, and the guy who was the cook, and so it's like a camp for 80 men. So it's only men. So it's a camp for 80 men. And the guy who's the cook uh, gets his visa. His two years are up and he gets his visa. And they ask, does anybody know how to cook? And so my dad, because he'd worked in a restaurant and he'd watched the guy, he says, you know, I, I'm a chef. I'm a chef. Yeah, anything he said to anything to get out of working in the in those hard labor fields. Yeah. And so he started cooking for groups of 80 people you know and uh and yeah so imagine he started he started really learning how to be able to cook for these giant you know masses of men and uh one of my favorite stories was um one of the days he was cooking um he saw that somebody had knocked down like they you know they were clearing land for different things you know for planting or whatever and they had knocked down these four huge palm trees so he remembered a story that his father had told him uh, because his father's father, yeah, I think I want to say his father's father. So like my great grandfather uh, was in, was in uh, the, the Cuban war of independence. And he remembers stories about the, the men uh, that were hiding in the mountains and like, you know, like they were subsisting off the land. One of the things they subsisted off was hearts of palm, like fresh hearts of palm. So he remembered that and he asked the men in the field, can you cut me out the, the hearts of palm from those four palms? And they cut them these big, clean, you know, uh, eight, 10 inch long heart, gleaming white hearts of palm. And the men had not, had never, had not eaten anything that was sweet, anything that was dessert. It was all chicharro and rice, like nonstop, like every day. So he had this crazy idea to take the hearts of palm. And cook it down almost like if it was a like a like a dulce de calabaza china or like a like a papaya type thing. So he cooked it down with like like almira, like sugared water, and it was like they got their hands on some cinnamon or some star anise, you know, and they cooked it down until it was like a soupy, syrupy thing. And that night he put they had like a little chalkboard and he wrote down, you know, today's menu: chicharro con arroz, you know, chicharro con arroz you know, split pea and rice and dulce de palma frias. And, oh. and he said that, uh, his, and his memory, like, like the, the men came in and they saw it and they were like, what is this? And everybody ate it. And they had their first sweet, the first sweet thing that some of the men had in, in months, if not years. And the very next day they cut down eight hearts, eight palm trees. So, <laughs> wow. so, so my dad learned to cook like that, you know, and, um, and it was really cool um, because, you know, he, even here, he enjoyed it. You know, he would, uh, th we, th my parents had a little jewelry store 
And in the back of the jewelry store, there was a tiny little stove, a four burner, tiny little apartment size four burner stove. And he would put on his apron and he would go back there and he would cook, you know, a quick, uh, a quick picadillo or um, he might make una vaca frita or whatever. And, uh, and that was just part of my growing up, you know, is seeing my mom and my dad together in the kitchen, you know, uh, cooking and stuff like that. It was really cool. And, and that's how it is with, you know, my fiance and, and my kids today. Like we, our kitchen is very much a, a hangout and a gathering place. And, and I find that like, even when there's a little tension in the house, like when we're on the kitchen cooking and doing something together, like when that, when the kitchen is busy, the tensions all kind of seem to render out, you know, um, because, you know, how can you be upset when uh, somebody's making you something delicious, you know? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and it smells great. It does. It does. <laughs> I I feel like uh, the aromas of the cooking and seeing your mom and dad in the kitchen, that brings so many beautiful memories, things that you can hold on to for the rest of your life. Do you feel like you're recreating that with your children too? Yeah, I definitely feel like it's had an effect that, you know, like they see cooking as a, as a way to like feed yourself and feed others and show people show people gratitude and show people affection. Um, it's funny, my my oldest daughter, who's 19, uh, has a boyfriend she's been dating for a year or two, a couple of years. And uh, anytime that I'm cooking, she's like, oh, you got to come over. My dad's cooking today. Aww. You know, and, and that feels so great. You know, like um, just this week alone, um, you know, I made a picadillo. I hadn't done it in a while because we're not eating a lot of red meat. So uh, I was like, you know, I'm going to make my picadillo on Wednesday. I, I estaba, you know, the table was full and there was... The boyfriend, like having picadillo, he's a Venezuelan That's kid. Cute. Yeah, he's a Venezuelan <laughs> kid, so he wasn't, he didn't grow up on picadillo. Um, so he was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" And all the kids hate it when I put raisins in the picadillo. Oh gosh! Uh, but and <laughs> but like this kid was like, "I kind of like it," and he's like, "Of course he likes it." The, these Venezuelans, they they eat sweet, they put sweet things in others, and so my kids yeah. hate it, but he liked it. And I was like, "Finally, I have an ally at this table." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now you approve of the boyfriend. <laughs> I do. You know what? I do. <laughs> For sure. If he likes if he likes olives and raisins in his picadillo, he's in. <laughs> so we before we end up back at food, uh, can you tell us a bit about how you got into journalism? Uh yeah, you know, I've you know, uh, if you do journalism for a long time, you end up covering a lot of different areas and I got into it uh as a sports writer. So I I got into it in college writing about uh college sports. You know, I was going to school at the University of Florida and I started writing and the teams at the University of Florida incidentally got very good, like na they got a lot of national attention. And I got a job as a correspondent with uh, the newspaper from my hometown, the, the Sun Sentinel, uh, which is in Fort Lauderdale. And um, and they basically said, you know, we'll pay you to write, you know, stories from, from the football team. And I wrote like I just started writing stories about sports and I did that for. Man, most of my career uh, was writing about sports. Um, I did that for like uh, well over 10 years, like probably 10 or 15 years. And um, and then I started writing, you know, like I really was fascinated about people's about people's stories, not necessarily the sports, but the people behind the sports. And that's kind of what is interesting to me now, too. You know, the people behind the food, you know, it was always the people that were involved in the stories, you know, the things that made the news headlines, you know. And uh, that's how I got into it. So I've, you know, I've covered things in business and, you know, I've covered, you know, kind of crime from crime to, um, 
to now food, you know, and I really just always appreciate the people behind the stories. And that's, that's, that's why I still do it. And it seems like you write a lot of like in-depth profiles. Do you, is there like something from your background or just how you grew up that kind of played into that? I mean, I always think that like my dad was a big storyteller, you know, like I had such vivid memories of, of like even Cuba and like he was growing up because he was so good at telling stories. And my dad, you know, those what they call the Juajiro, like like the uh, the old school farmers in Cuba, they call them Juajiros. They think the name comes from war hero because, you know, they those 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 mambises, those um, those early fighters fought alongside the U.S. to get you know, in, during the Spanish American war, you know, to, to get to, which is what separated Cuba f- uh, from, from being a Spanish uh, territory. And so like that group of those Mambises, they called them that they think that's where the name Wajito came from, but really it becomes these country, you know, country folks go machete, you know? And, um, and part of the traditions is these kind of what, you know, these, these poesias, these dicharachos, these making up like this, like Punto Wajito, is like a big thing where it's like um uh it's punto wajiro is like a cross between music and poetry kind of like self-written um limericks you know that go along with music um interesting like things like my dad would say um uh, he would say, "Here's one." He'd say, "Like, tun 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 tun. Oye, Carlito, ven acá, que yo te quiero cantar. Y aquí te puedes quedar y cuando quieras te baja. Tun 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 tun. You know. <laughs> Very so he cute. Would play, you have he a great play voice. Music. No, I have a no. Please don't say that. It's terrible. Yes, <laughs> it's great. So it's little things like that, you know, and um. So my dad, and then he had a lot of little poems growing up, little, um, little poems that he just, that he taught to me and that I taught to my daughters and he taught to my daughters over the years. So all those, every one of those little poems has a little story behind it. There's one that my daughters recited at his funeral. Uh, and, and it was one of his favorites. Um, it said, uh, it was called La Tortola and it's very, it's a, fa- it's, it's, it's a famously known story, like in in like those, uh, uh, like in that old tradition. And it was like, well, how is it? I think it goes, Tortola mía, sin estar presa, echa mi cama, echa mi mesa, un beso ahora y otro después. ¿Por qué te has ido? ¿Qué fuga es esa si marronzuela de rojos pies? Ver hojas verdes solo te incita. El fresco arroyo tu pico invita. Te llama el aire que susurró. Ay de mi tortola, mi tortolita, que al monte ha sido y allá quedó. So like those little poems all are, are a full story. Like that's like, you know, this, this whole story of loss, like my, my daughter, my oldest, when she was little, she would say it and her eyes would fill up with tears. Like, like the, oh, la tortola has flown off into, you know, into the, into the mountains, you know. And I think that that's where I got my love for storytelling is like, I just kind of grew up hearing those little stories, you know? That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. It almost made me cry. (laughs) Okay. It's very touching. It's all those little things, those little things. Yeah. Yeah. How did you end up in food writing specifically? How did you make that transition? 
Well, I had this, I have this really great friend. Her name is Liz Balmaceda, who was a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner at the Miami Herald. And she later started as the food editor of the Palm Beach Post, where I was working. And I was just starting to write general features and like outside of sports, but like people in the community that were interesting, that had great stories to tell. And she said, you know, you can tell great stories through food. And she gave me a couple assignments and a couple ideas. And I started writing about these different folks, folks who owned a restaurant, folks who were selling los tamale, folks who started a, you know, a hot dog shop, you know, and everybody had this, these places that not only were turning out food that like catches your attention, like, oh, this is really good. But then they had this great story behind it. And I realized that that was a play, that was a way that you really tie the community together. You know, you can really, like now when people go to like try that, oh, that Cuban sandwich that I read about in the Miami Herald. Oh, I know that the guy is from such and such a place. And I went to that high school too, you know, and like that community feels more connected than if it's just like a McDonald's drive through you know? And I found that I got a lot of great feedback, you know? And, and that's really nice. As a writer, you want people to read your stuff and you also want to know that they, that they enjoyed it, that they made, it made their life more interesting, you know? And, uh, and I think that's, that's why I like doing it. So I love that you are writing now. It's just so Miami. I generally believe in the power of excellent meal to transport you anywhere in the world. And you do the same thing in your writing. Every piece takes me out of New York into Miami. And of course, you're writing about food, which is a bonus. What is it about Miami food scene that is so special? Well, I think growing up, like I mentioned, I grew up just north of Miami. And like all of my family, except my dad, my mom and I dad, lived in the heart of Miami. So like I had this yearning to be part of this town. So when I had a chance to, even before I started working at the Herald, I moved to the to Miami. When I said, when I lived, I want to live in Latin, like metropolitan Miami. Like I want to live in the heart of where, you know, of where all the the culture is, you know, like I live in the very central part of the city of Miami. And I grew up with that wanting to know, to understand. So I still like, I still go about my day with a fascination learning about different things and things that catch my attention and things that I know that, that are very different. So I always look for stories that, um, that could only happen here. Like this okay. could only happen in Miami. That's really my driving force. Like before I decide to write about something, I say, is this so unique? Could this be written about in New York? Could this be written about in Brooklyn? Or is this a very Miami story? And that's, that's really what my, my ultimate goal is, is finding those and then telling the story behind those. This year, Florida received the first ever Michelin Guide with Miami bringing home the most stars, 11 one-star restaurants, and the state's only two-star restaurant. What effect has this had on the food scene there? I, I think um, it's only a couple months old since we got it, so I think it remains to be seen. But I think what it means is that Miami's on a national, on an international stage. So the Michelin Guide really is for international travelers. You know, Miami's been uh, a really international city for a long time. You know, it's the hub to Latin America, but also to Europe. Like we get a lot of direct travel, especially, you know, we have a lot of Italy connection, a lot of Italian connections. And, and I think that that, um, when you're on the guide, it then, it then, it becomes a roadmap for a whole other group of people to discover what you're doing in food. 
Um, so I think it works hand in hand. It, it's great because it's an international destination and it becomes an international destination because of the food. So like both of those things, uh, they help each other. Um, and I think it remains to be seen like how it'll help in the day to day. Um, but I think it just, it helps solidify Miami is, uh, uh, you know, it gives it another, um, gives it another stronghold as a, as a tourist destination, you know, but for those of us who live, who live here, I think it's just maybe a point of pride, you know, that they, you know, yeah. you're a little bit on, you're a little bit on the map, uh, more so, um, but, you know, our favorite places, places are still our favorite places, you know, whether they get a Michelin star or not. I want to I want to add one thing before I forget. So oh, sure. um, when I started writing about food, I started looking for people who were doing it in in really good ways, people that were interesting to me. Um, and I came across this podcast called The Sporkful uh, and it was done uh-huh. by Dan Pashman, uh, uh, who's who's out of New York. And I just I fell in love with so many of the episodes and how he told stories about food through audio. And, and that's where I discovered you. So like, I, I I remember he was doing a whole story about Coquito and I loved like that whole episode is fantastic because the Cuban tradition is like every Latin American country has its own version of like a cream style holiday drink. You know, yeah. whether it has eggs or whether it doesn't have eggs or, but it all has got, and it usually has its whatever the local alcohol is, you know, like Peru does one with Pisco and, you know, uh, you know, um, someplace might do one with Aguardiente, you know, and, you know, uh, and, and I, and I remember hearing about the Coquito, you know, cause my parents grew up when I was growing up, they always made a big vat of crema de vie, which was the big one that's in Cuba. Okay, uh, yeah. Because I was going to say in Cuba, coquito is a little tiny dessert, right? It's named. Yeah, okay. exactly. It's like a little, it's like a chewy little uh, coconut, uh, almost like a macaroon, like a coconut macaroon. That's like what a coquito is. So I grew up with with, uh, with crema de vie on the holidays. But um, I remember having uh, coquito and I was like, this is amazing. Like, this is the best version of these cream drinks. And, and I remember that. And I remember the the recipe that you use, and it was like a quote unquote light coquito because you don't put eggs in it, which no. I've come to learn means that makes it into ponche, which is something else. Which yeah. you know, I love that that it's a whole separate. You have separate categories of alcohol yes. alcohol based cream drinks, and um and I made that once for our very first the very first holiday party that I was at at the Miami Herald, and there was already somebody on staff who made a great coquito. That everybody was like, oh, she makes the great, the best coquito, and I made yours, and it. Everybody was like, oh my god, this is the new best coquito in town. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, and it was That's- it was a hit. And every year, every year I make crema de vie from a great recipe from a friend of mine who uh, uh, she wrote a great cookbook called The Cuban Table, which was nominated for a James Beard Award. And oh, her crema de vie, her crema de vie recipe is fantastic. It's the best one that I've had. And I make that and we make your light coquito recipe. And those are, that's how we get through the holidays. Oh, I love it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my God, I'm blushing. It's fantastic. It's <laughs> that's so definitely good. how we get through the holidays. Too. <laughs> yes, yes. And I got to say that, just to add on that, be, because you brought it out there to the light and you talked about it on Twitter and how popular it was, People get, got really curious and they just reached out to me. They wanted to learn how to make it. They signed up for my classes. I mean, like I'm thinking you can get the recipe online, but they rather 
me, they rather that I teach it to them, which is kind of cool. It makes me feel important, I guess, special. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, it's, it's great. A, yeah, it's a lot of it's fun. It's definitely not the same. Like there, I feel like there has to be tips that like you can't put on a recipe because like I've tried, I mean, I've followed your coquito recipe to the T and it still does not taste like when you make it. it you're, when you make it, it's still way better than when I've made it. <laughs> well, I do. I, I guess what, what I'm trying to do with the class too is sort of lead people to like the history of Coquito, the how my grandmother tried to, you know, she was like a scientist in the kitchen trying to figure out the right spices, the right measurement, the right everything. And when you give the recipe to somebody online, there is just like the measurements have to be so exact, like a baking almost, that if you put too much of nutmeg, guess what? It's going to taste terrible. You know, so I just make sure that everybody just follows to the point every measurement, you know, in the class. So I guess that's what makes it a little bit different than following the recipe. Yeah, no, I would love that. That sounds like a that, that sounds like a great experience to be able to do that and learn, you know, why you're putting in what you're putting in, you know. Um, but I every I experiment with it a little bit every year, like one year's I'll use you know, don't cue rum. And next year I'll do Ron Diplomatico, you know, and then uh, one year, you know, I'll use this kind of coconut milk and next year I'll try a different one and see, you know, which one, which one we like best here, but they're yeah. all start from the mother recipe. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I think that you can change the milk and everything. It's just the spices have to be like the right ones always. Really perfect. And really on point. yes, and fresh, because if you use old spices, forget about it. It's not going to taste the same. It's not going to taste the same. <laughs> no. If I asked your kids, what is their favorite meal that you cook? What do you think their answer would be? Oh man, that's a tough one. Uh, the picadillo is up there. Um, they love when I make, um, you're going to laugh. They love when I make pizza. Because I like is it the like, Cuban pizza or regular? Pizza? No, it is regular pizza. Uh, I just I make it with you know Italian OO flour so that it's like the the dough is really nice and I ferment it three days in the I cold ferment it in in the fridge so that the the bread turns out really nice. So they love pizza. Uh, those are always winners, and they love when I make pan con lechon. Like that's their other favorite. Like in my house, like sandwich sandwiches take the same level of respect as like a, like you could serve them for Thanksgiving as far as I'm concerned, you know? Uh, like I, I love making, you know, big sandwiches to the, to the point where um, I recently just asked the, um, the owner of Versailles. Versailles is probably the most famous Cuban restaurant outside of Cuba. And it's in Miami. It's been here for 50 years. I asked him, Hey, can you help me source a commercial sandwich press. And from their kitchens, they found me like this really monster sandwich press. If you Google, if you look on my Twitter feed, you'll find it there. And it's an actual commercial sandwich press. And I had everybody over yesterday and I made, you know, these big sandwiches, you know, with, uh, you know, jamón viejo and jamón de pierna and, uh, you know, gallo azul cheese, gouda cheese and, um, I make like a, like a special sauce that goes on it with, you know, like, like, um, it's like a, it's like a quote unquote secret sauce, you know, like mayo, mustard, ketchup, sriracha, you know, diced onions, diced pickles, uh, you know, salt and pepper, uh, you know, a little horseradish, you know, that on the sandwiches, uh, I put 
chorizo con timpalo. Basically, I make these big fat sandwiches and I butter them up and I press it on this big commercial press and they taste amazing. And it's like, it's, I'm at the next level. I've, I think I've, I think I might have a. I think I might have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but that must feel I, so cool using the the giant sandwich press. <laughs> yeah, it is fantastic. It is. It's. It's probably about. It's got to be like eighteen, nineteen inches across, almost almost two feet across, and it's like seventeen inches deep. It's this big giant square, and it's and it and it cranks up to five hundred and fifty degrees. Like it's like a monster. <laughs> like it is a full on commercial thing. And you know what? It is totally worth it. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you know my next question is going to be where do you keep it? I, I I honestly make room for it on the kitchen counter. Like, you know, we have a an L-shaped counter and like on one end of the counter of the L-shaped counter is my stove and it kind of makes an L like this. And on this end by the fridge, boom, I have it right there. I'll send you a picture of it. But I, I think it's if always you go ready on, to go. It's ready to go. You know what's funny is what's funny is I have to actually move it to a different to my island. I have a, an island right in the middle, you know, in our kitchen, um, uh, and and I plug it in there because the circuit that it's on currently it's too strong for the circuit. So I have to have an electrician to come oh. in. But I'm committed. I'm committed. <laughs> you gonna rewire your home for the sandwich press? Oh man, totally. Listen, in for a penny, in for a pound, man. I'm I'm yeah. ready to do it. So besides being a food editor for the Miami Herald and making a ton of sandwiches for a lot of people, you also host a podcast called La Ventanita. So can you tell us a bit about the name of that podcast and what's the message and what you guys are trying to do with it? Totally. So uh, in Miami, uh, our ventanitas are Cuban are these Cuban coffee walk-up windows. You find them all over town um, where you can walk in and it's it's literally just a little sliding window on the side of restaurants. And uh, Cuban places, and you can that's where you get your your cafe cubano, your colada to share, and it's kind of where people meet. They people meet to talk and have a snack and catch up with each other at La Ventanita, and then we go on with our lives. So I thought, what a great way to a great name for the podcast is like a meeting place where we all meet and we exchange ideas and we hang out for a little bit. And I do the podcast with my uh, my good friend Amy Reyes, who is uh, a white American girl from Detroit who is married to a uh, uh, Dominican TV star. Uh, so her Spanish is as good as probably better than most people who, who grew up in Spanish speaking countries. Um, and, and, you know, she lived in Miami forever. So she's got a Detroit vibe and she's got a Miami, she understands Miami and she speaks great Spanish and, and she's super funny. So we, you know, we do it, we have a good time. We try to have a laugh and, and we try to invite a guest every now and then, you know, uh, every other week or every week. Um, to just come in and, and talk with them a little bit about food and culture and Miami and everything else. Yeah. And has the podcast like helped you connect with the community, especially during the pandemic? Yeah, I think so because we're doing it remote, you know, we can get to a lot of people. Um, also it gives us a chance to talk to people who maybe are not quote unquote newsworthy. Like there's, they're not, they haven't just opened a restaurant or they haven't just come up with a new recipe or they haven't done anything in that moment, but someone that we've been meaning to talk to for a long time, you know, uh, or someone that we just love talking with, um, you know, that, that makes it fun. And we, we try to look for folks who have a Miami connection so that the show feels very local and feels very, uh, like, like for, like by Miami for Miami, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, and it's been fun to do so far. I like it. I feel like Miami has so many stories and it'll be 
Very interesting to have it all in a podcast, especially Domino's Park, is it? Yes. The, yep. I, I'm sure with all the hangouts there and everything, somebody can make a podcast of all the guys, old men talking about Domino's and all the oh Kapiku and all this other stuff. <laughs> that would be an amazing podcast, the Domino podcast. <laughs> well, I gave you the idea, okay? So you got to give me some credit. <laughs> all right, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so um, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? I'm ready. Okay. Let's do it. All right. Best Cuban sandwich in Miami. Wow. I can't say my kitchen. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say uh, Luis Galindo's Latin America has got okay. the best Cuban sandwich. Your favorite writer. Uh, my favorite writer. Um, God, it's, it's too stuffy to say William Faulkner. Uh, I'm going to say, um, I, I'm okay. Um, I'm really enjoying uh, Emily St. John Mandel right now. Okay. Besides Miami, what is the best city for food in the, U in the U.S.? Oof. Um, best city for food in the U.S.? If I don't say New York City, everybody's going to get mad at me, right? Yeah, uh, definitely. Yes. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say. You know. I'm gonna say Brooklyn. Okay. <laughs> Choose one to give up: Cuban coffee or air conditioning. Woo! Wow. <laughs> Can I say I'll give up air conditioning if I'm outside of South Florida? But if I'm in South Florida, I'll give up the Cuban coffee. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think most people would say that's fair. <laughs> what What terrible food do you love? Oh, Arby's roast beef sandwiches. <laughs> I will stand by it. <laughs> what advice would you give your younger self? Don't take yourself so seriously. It's all going to be okay. I like it. In one word, what does success mean to you? So success to me means, oh, in one word... To feel satisfied. Nice. The best thing about being a food writer? Getting to tell the stories of the people that make some of our favorite food. Wonderful. Love it. Thank you. You're very inspiring. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, it's a lot of fun. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, no problem. So now that, now that you've said that my mom's coquito is the best i need to stop her from making a ton of t-shirts about it because i'm sure she will <laughs> but, but thank it's you for so much for joining us today on the show it has been my sincere pleasure and i can't wait for the weather to start getting a little bit cool because that means it's going to be coquito time and thanks to our listeners for continuing to support the show it means the world to us if you'd like to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or find other ways to help our show, check out the links in the show notes. Carlos, congratulations again on a well-deserved success. I hope we can meet up for a Cuban meal sometime. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah, uh, the best place to find me in a, the biggest public forum is on Twitter. You can find me at Carlos underscore Frias, F-R-I-A-S. 
Uh, you can also uh, sometimes post publicly on Facebook, but uh, don't count on it very often. <laughs> and also just go to the MiamiHerald.com. All my stories and are all archived there. Wonderful. And if you're interested in learning more about Coquito or other recipes, just visit us at CookieTheChef.com. Tortola mía, sin estar presa, hecha mi cama, hecha mi mesa, un beso ahora y otro después. ¿Por qué te has ido? ¿Qué fuga es esa si marronzuela de rojos pies? Ver hojas verdes solo te incita. El fresco arroyo tu pico invita. Te llama el aire que susurró. Ay de mi tórtola, mi tortolita, que al monte ha sido y allá quedó.